This is the Overtime Podcast Network. This is the Turn on the Jets podcast. I don't have to convince any one of those eight defensive coaches how effed up I am. These players, they want to defend MetLife Stadium for you guys. Here's your host. Joe Caparoso. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Turn on the Jets podcast. I'm your host, Joe Caparoso, owner of TurnOnTheJets.com. Today, I'm going to be joined by Scott Mason, our podcast machine over on the Play Like a Jet feed. We're going to talk through something different I'm going to try on the Turn on the Jets feed. Usually, if you follow this podcast, it's once a week, it's twice a week, it's a bit of a longer show that's usually built around a single interview, and that's probably the rotation we're going to have once we get going in the regular season. However, since I am so excited that football is finally back and about to take over our lives every single weekend, starting this Monday, I'm going to run a podcast on the TOJ feed for 10 straight days. And what I'm going to do, they're going to be 15-minute shows. They're just going to be myself. They're going to be very tight and quick uh, to consume. I'm going to go through what I see as the 10 biggest questions facing the New York Jets in 2019 and talk about each of those individual episodes, uh, in each of those individual questions over the course of 10 straight episodes. So we're going to see how that goes, how that's received. We're going to do some giveaways around it. Uh, and try something a little different, and that will take us right into the start of the regular season and what we're previewing for week one against Buffalo. Uh, so what I'm going to do with Scott today is I'm going to talk through what I think those 10 questions are at a super high level, and we'll have a quick back and forth about it, and then you guys will know what to expect uh, starting next week. And again, we'll run that basically starting next Monday for 10 straight days, and then we'll be right into our week one uh, coverage, which is crazy Crazy to think about, and I'm sure there'll be no shortage of uh, roster news because the bottom 15 spots on this roster are wide, wide, wide open, which is part of what we'll get into today. Before I get into my conversation with Scott, which will run about 30 minutes or so, remind you guys, subscribe, rate, review on iTunes. We're at like 540, I think, right now. So the next goal is to get to 600, and then we keep going from there. Podcast also available on Spotify, Google Play, and turn on the jets.com. You could always follow me on Twitter at Jay Caparoso. Follow Scott on Twitter at Play Like a Jet One. And of course, also subscribe, rate, and review to the Play Like a Jet podcast, which drops every single day, first thing in the morning, with the most up to date news and analysis on what's going on. Uh, Got to be subscribed to both podcasts to, to get all the information you need. Anyway, Scott, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's been a while since I think I've had you on the TOJ feed. How you been? I'm doing well, Joe, and I have to say that um, I'm a little bit embarrassed now because you're getting close to like 600 reviews. I didn't even hit 200 yet, so I think people need to give me some reviews so that you're not leaving me so far in your dust. It's getting to be a little bit insane how much further ahead you are. Listen, it's fair, and we're going to rally the troops, and now we'll have a a daily podcast like you for 10 straight days to remind people (laughs) to get the ratings going on both. I should also now remind people to uh, rate and review and follow the new Cool Your Jets podcast hosted by Michael Nanya and Ben Blessington, two of our young pups on the staff who have been cranking through and had a good, uh, interesting interview with Manish Mehta that came out this week, our old dear friend, uh, Talking Jets, so give that a listen. Um, all right, Scott, I, in my expert, expert opinion, have decided that these are the 10 biggest questions facing the New York Jets in 2019 that will have the biggest 
determination on whether they're going to break their eight-year playoff drought, be a very average 500 team, or be wildly disappointing again and win five or six games. I They're not ranked in any particular order as of right now. They're just dropped down. These are what I think the 10 biggest issues are. So I want to give our very, very quick take on how important we think this is, if it actually should be something that's in the top 10, and then when we go through... Are we missing anything? Is there a glaring omission that I have uh, on this roster or this organization? The first thing that came to my mind, and it's probably the first thing that comes to every Jets fan's mind and is the most, the thing they're most excited to talk about, is very simply, can Sam, can Sam Darnold make, in quotes, the leap this year? The leap that Carson Wentz made, the leap that Jared Goff made, the leap that... Uh, Andrew Luck made and all these quarterbacks made early in their career to go from being exciting young players to being great young quarterbacks. Is there any way that this is not the most important question facing the Jets this year? And succinctly, how good are you feeling about that heading into the regular season? Yeah, Joe, I'm really bullish on Sam Darnold, and I think he's going to be excellent this year. And to answer your question, I think it's the number one, two, three, and fourth most important question on Jets fans' minds and really for the Jets franchise in general. If he can make that leap, the sky is the limit because we've seen what can happen when you have a true franchise quarterback and you surround him with really good talent. And the talent around him should be a lot better this year. They brought in Le'Veon Bell, who's a all-pro caliber running back who can also make a big difference in the passing game. Jamison Crowder, who I was very bullish on, who I think can be a big weapon in the Gase offense. We've already seen Adam Gase attempt to use Robbie Anderson in some different ways. So he could help diversify that attack as more than just a guy who runs deep. I think that'll still be his primary thing, but I think that he'll be able to run a few more routes and, and do some things this year. If Anunwa stays healthy, big question mark, that'll help. The offensive line look it would be hard for Ryan Khalil to not be an upgrade over Spencer Long, and it would be almost as hard for Kalechia Semele to not be an upgrade over uh, Rob Carpenter from, uh, excuse me, James Carpenter, not, no disrespect to former Jets wide receiver Rob Carpenter, James Carpenter, the offensive guard. And I think when, when you put that together with the fact that Sam Darnold was really starting to come into his own last year with a weak supporting cast, you know, the last four games of the season, you can make the case that he was right there with any other quarterback in the league. He was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and the way that you saw his skills play out, the, the being able to make throws on the run, being able to make throws when his feet aren't set, his feel for the game, anticipation throws, you could go on and on down the line. He just is a special talent. It's just a matter of being able to harness that on a consistent basis. And I, I think if you watch this USC tape, and this is why myself and Joe Blewett and Joe Malfa were very big on him and had him as our number one quarterback coming out of USC, he showed all these things on a fairly consistent basis at USC. In fact, I would say on a very consistent basis. And the main thing that I think Jets fans faltered on with him is that they didn't really consider him because they thought he was going number one. So they talked themselves into Mayfield and Rosen, and I was a big Mayfield guy, but I had Donald number one, just never expected him to get here because of the multitude of skills that I just mentioned that he showed throughout the year in spurts, but especially consistently in those last four games. So I think Donald, from what you hear about what's been going on in the training camp, 
he's really looked poised and, and just incredibly strong uh, on a regular basis. Chris Nimbley, who's been covering the Jets for a decade now, has said, and to be fair, this isn't that high of a bar considering who the Jets have had a quarterback those 10 years, that Darnold is far and away, it's not even close, the best quarterback he's ever seen at Jets training camp. Again, you could say that it's not that high of a bar because of who he's up against. But I think when you consider what he did in college and the traits that you saw and then what he was able to build up to those last four weeks and combine it with his ability to now work within that gay system and the improved supporting cast around him, I'm very bullish on Darnold having a really strong season in year two and making that leap. Is it going to be good enough to get the Jets to the Super Bowl the way that the Eagles did with Wentz? I doubt it. But could it be good enough to, to bring them into playoff contention? Yeah, I think it could. Yeah, I think, and I'll dive into this deeper on, on the episode around it, but he is the one player who can override a lot of the other problems that this roster have will have because it's going to take more than one year to undo some of the damage uh, of the previous regime. And I think there's not a person you could talk to who's watched the team this summer who doesn't have Darnold's growth and performance and presence be the top story of what's coming out of this camp. And he's looked great in both preseason games, which is encouraging. It's the preseason, but it's encouraging. Mm -hmm. Second thing, what did Adam Gase learn from his time in Miami? I was not a fan of the Gase hire, despite all the fun clips that we get and him being the guy. I'm not sold on the hire until he wins more football games. All he is, in my mind, is a guy who was pretty bad the last two years in Miami. I, you know, The Jets play Miami twice a year. Didn't see anything over the past two years from Miami that I thought was spectacular. Uh, we're already seeing some guys from... Uh, his time in Miami being brought in. I'm curious if Nanya's boy, Lachlan Edwards, is going to get knocked off the roster by Gase's uh, old punter in Miami. <laughs> All minor things, of course. But the real question is, was Adam Gase part of the problem in Miami or was he a victim of the people he was surrounded by in that organization? And I think Jet fans are rightly uh, excited about the Joe Douglas hire, and he's going to have a much longer leash because of when he was hired. He probably has, you know, a 99.9 approval rating from Jet fans right now, whereas Adam Gase is probably like a <laughs> 60 or 70% approval rating, which is pretty good for him considering it was about a 5% when they were considering hiring him. But the real question in my mind is let's put all the clips from one Jets drive aside, let's put all the press conferences aside. All the crazy stories about him not being there when his wife was given birth and not sleeping for 87 days. When the games start, is he going to be a better coach than he was the past two years? Because his history dictates he's a 23-25 and 25 coach, which is you know better than Todd Bowles was, but it's not enough to overtake New England or make any noise in the playoffs. So you, if I recall correctly, were not a fan of the Gase hire either when it happened. How, how are you feeling about it at this point? Yeah, I was not a fan. In fact, I was the very opposite of a fan. I was incensed that they hired him. And it had nothing to do with the X's and O's, where I think he's strong. I don't have so much of a problem there. The only real problem I have with that, and this kind of goes more back to the mental stuff and the being able to be the, the guy that manages everything, is that sometimes he would do things that were working and he would get away from it, even though it was still working in Miami, almost as a way of saying, hey, I don't need to do this and trying to prove that he was smarter than everybody else. But as far as the, the general X's and O's on offense, I thought he was 
perfectly capable in Miami. I think he showed as an offensive coordinator that he was pretty good. My main concern with Adam Gase was and still is his ability to manage all the other aspects of a football team because what people don't seem to understand sometimes is that being a head coach and being a coordinator are two very different things. It's one thing to run a unit and be responsible for calling plays. It's another thing to have to deal with all the players on the team, the coaching staff, interacting with management, dealing with the media, so on and so forth. And those were a lot of areas where he had trouble. You know, he had run-ins with players, and there were times where he was completely disconnected. There's that story with Rashad Jones pulling himself out of the game, and Gase had to find out about it in the press conference and the media, which is very reminiscent of, if you recall, Joe, what happened with San Antonio Holmes in 2011 when his teammates kicked him out of the huddle and Rex didn't find out about it until afterwards from the press. And those are not things you want to hear about a head coach. This is a guy that doesn't necessarily have to have his hands in calling plays or being super involved with the defense, but, but he should at least know what's going on with the team and the defense and the coaches and so on and so forth. Plus there's that potentially combustible thing between Craig Williams and Joe Vitt. I know they've, they say they've patched it up and maybe they have, but obviously you've got two very fiery people with a pass. So there's that in there too. But I, I think what Gase really needs to show is not that, he's grown X's and O's wise, because like I said, I have no problem with that. And I think Donald's going to do well with him. And that was one thing that I said right from the get go, that regardless of whatever else happened, I thought Donald would be fine with Gase, but he's got to show that he's grown into the head coach's role and that he isn't just a, a glorified coordinator who lost control, which is what it seemed like he was in Miami. Now I maintain that if, happen the best thing for Gase would have been to go back to being a coordinator for a year or two and lick his wounds and, and kind of reflect it doesn't seem there are a whole lot of examples of guys who were fired this quickly into their first head coaching stint and immediately came right back and succeeded I'm hoping that Gase is the exception to that if he's going to be the exception to that he's going to have to get over his stubbornness he's going to have to learn to work with guys that maybe are not exactly within his comfort zone. And, uh, you know, overall, he's going to have to just basically take accountability for things in a way that he didn't always do in Miami. And I will say this, uh, the, the other day after training camp practice, Gase admitted that he made a mistake playing Avery Williamson. He said it was his fault. It's on him. And, you know, as proof that he didn't say this, but he did say, that Williamson injury uh, played into his decision to not play Le'Veon Bell the rest of the preseason. Now we could sit here and debate how much culpability gave or the decision itself with Williamson or whether or not it was just a freak injury and there's nothing anybody can do. But the fact is that Gase didn't try to hem and haw and he didn't try to be a lawyer or a PR guy. He said, look, I made the decision. It didn't work out. It's my fault. And again, he didn't say, well, to prove I learned from it, this is what I'm doing, but it does seem that he's learned from it. And, and I think that's a sign of maturity. So I hope that we get more of that, more accountability, more of him being willing to change based on, you know, even if he had predetermined notions about players or certain things. And, and that um, I hope that he's also learned that he needs to keep an eye on everything and keep control of everything and manage not just up, but down. You know, I like the fact that he seems to have a good chemistry with Joe Douglas, but I hope he keeps it that way. Uh, it seems like he's got a good rapport with Sam Donald. I hope it stays 
kids that way and the rest of the team for that matter. So I, I think if he's learned how to be a real manager, a real leader of men and how to be a real administrator in a way, then things could go better than you and I are, are expecting. If not, uh, then, you know, we could be right back in the same boat in a couple of years where the Jets are looking for a head coach. But I hope that Gase did learn and that he is somebody that uh, is the exception to the rule when it comes to being fired very quickly into his first head coaching stint and then turning around and figuring out what he did wrong and being able to be successful his second time around. Next question, still on the offensive side of the football here. The biggest acquisition in my mind of the Jets offseason and a player I was consistently very bullish about them adding, despite it, I don't think always necessarily being something that was looked at as a slam dunk by a lot of people and by a lot of Jet fans, and it still may not ultimately prove to be. But the question is, can Le'Veon Bell get back to his Pittsburgh Steelers form, or at least close enough to the form where he's one of the best running backs in the NFL? Now, the Jets have not... The Jets have Le'Veon Bell in 2016 and 2017. The Jets have not had a skilled position player that good on their offense since Curtis Martin in his prime, who was a Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, they had the flash in the pan season with Brandon Marshall, but it's easy to forget just how good Le'Veon Bell was when he was really rolling. Now, this isn't the same offense. He's been off for a year. It's a unique situation. We're not going to see any of them in the preseason. To expect him to hit the ground running in week one. Probably a bit naive, but if he's 90, 95% of the player he was in Pittsburgh, that is obviously a major game changer for the Jets offense and a game changer for Sam Darnold and just changes the type of team this is in my mind uh, because Bell at that level is not just one of the best running backs in the league. He's one of the best offensive players and all-around players in the league. So it's almost hard to project what we're going to get because you're getting little glimpses of him here or there. Really not going to know until it's you know the first quarter against Buffalo and he's really getting involved. From a production standpoint, raw numbers, what are you looking for from Bell this year and what was reasonable for Jet fans to expect? I mean, it's fantasy draft season. Where, where are we taking this guy? I think that if he can get back to reasonably close to what he was doing in Pittsburgh, then that would be something that, all Jets fans should rejoice about. And I think he can. Listen, I know he's shaking off the rust, but he did have a year off, so he didn't have as much uh, punishment on his body as other running backs that are his age and had as many carries as he had for a couple of years in a row. The thing that Le'Veon Bell is going to bring to this offense that the Jets haven't seen in a really long time is a guy who has the ability to really be a triple threat. He's somebody that we all know what he can do as a running back. He's been one of the best in the league for years. But he also is somebody that can line up as a wide receiver. Now, he's not going to be as good as the Jets' actual wide receivers. But for running back, look, he's going to be matched up on linebackers. And he's going to win those matchups 9.5 out of 10 times. And on top of that, I think a lot of people don't realize how good of a blocker he is. You know, when I talked to Ray Mickens about the 1998 season, he told me that when they spent all that money and gave up the draft picks to get Curtis Martin uh, when he was a restricted free agent with the New England Patriots, he thought, what are we doing this for? We already have Adrian Morrell, who's a really good running back. Curtis Martin's good, but do we really need to do this? And then he said he watched him in practice 
And all the players just were like, wow, this guy is just something different. And I think you see that with Le'Veon Bellman in training camp. Chris Nimbley said to me on the podcast that the thing that he notices with Le'Veon Bell is that sometimes with baseball players, you'll hear a sports writer say, the ball just sounds different coming off of that guy's bat. And that's kind of what it is with Bell. When you watch him practice, there's just something that, that – looks different just the way he carries himself the way he carries the ball he's just on on a, a level that most people aren't on and never will get to and I, I think even if his numbers are down a little bit from when he was in Pittsburgh which they probably will be because I don't think they're going to use him anywhere near as much as Pittsburgh did they're going to want to keep him fresher down the stretch and I, I think the fact that time on been doing well will help that because they won't be as reticent to bring him in they'll be able to give him more touches and kind of ease up on bell but i think if he can give you let's say double digit touchdowns overall between rushing and receiving and if he can give you you know say 1200 rushing yards or or somewhere in that area and then another few hundred receiving the ball and be a, a really nice blocker for the jets as well I think that, you know, that that's what you're looking at. Now, you know, look, I can't give you ironclad predictions on the specific numbers. I'm just giving you outlines. And Joe Blewett always gives me a hard time when I, I say this to him on the, the XNL Quick Hits show. I'll say, okay, what do you expect from him? Give me some numbers. He's like, oh, do I really have to do this? But I, I do understand because it kind of puts that idea in somebody's head as to, you know, okay, here's the general idea of what you should expect. But I think what Jets fans should expect more than numbers is a guy that is going to be a very impactful impact, uh, offensive player, somebody that's going to be an excellent safety valve for Sam Darnold, and somebody that, look, the Jets have had a lot of trouble picking up key third downs. Le'Veon Bell is one of the best in the league at doing that. So I, I, I think for whatever you want to say about the idea of spending big on a running back, and, you know, we've had this debate 100,000 times. Uh, whether you afford or not, you are going to really enjoy watching Le'Veon Bell play if you're a Jets fan, and you are going to realize very quickly that whether or not you feel like it was a good move to commit that kind of money, he is going to be somebody that makes a major difference for this team on offense. Next two questions, and we'll bunch them together, but they'll be separate uh, episodes. First off, who the hell is playing cornerback? Let's keep it as simple as that. And then where's the pass rush <laughs> coming from? Now, I think the second question, there's more ways to look at it and there's more ways to get after you know the quarterback, whether that is with their interior pass rush from their defensive line, although we haven't seen much Leonard Williams this summer, uh, or whether it's Greg Williams dying, dialing up a ton of different blitzes and counting on guys like Jamal Adams and Brian Poole uh, to get after the quarterback from the secondary position. Cornerback... I keep trying to tell this to Jet fans. This is not uh, over the summer fix before 2019. This is going to be a multi-year process of rebuilding this entire secondary around Jamal Adams because we don't know if we can count on Marcus May yet to run with him at safety long term. But just looking at cornerback, Tremaine Johnson's been hurt again all summer. Let's assume he misses week one. And that means you're looking at, as it stands now, Daryl Roberts, who is the team's fourth or fifth cornerback the past few years. Brian Poole, I would say an average nickel corner. And then maybe Marcus Cooper, a journeyman veteran who they signed a couple days ago. Undrafted free agent, Kayvon Brown, maybe. Um, 
Uh, Parry Nickerson, who's a slot corner who's been fairly atrocious whenever he's played. These are the names we're kind of looking at right now. And even if Tremaine Johnson plays, what happens when the Jets go to four corners on the field? What happens if he gets nicked up again? What happens if Poole or Roberts struggle? That position um, is going to be such a challenge for Greg Williams to coach around no matter what. And Joe Douglas, in my mind, is not going to hemorrhage a high-round pick next year uh, in his first draft as a general manager to maybe take a fly, not a flyer, but go all in on a guy like Darius Slay or Jalen Ramsey, if those guys are even really actually on the market. I, again, I think with a pass rush, there's ways to work around it maybe and manufacture it. In a perfect world, you would have a, you know, a great pass rush built in to compensate for the lack of depth at corner, but at corner kind of feel like this is a 2014 situation again where you look at the three or four guys who are out there and you're like who the hell are these guys and when were they added to the roster is there any name (laughs) i am missing that is going to be some savior at this position it kind of reminds me a little bit of the movie major league if you've ever seen it joe when they're looking at the roster and they're sitting in the diner and those guys go who the f are these guys (laughs) because really that is kind of what it is i mean other than tremaine johnson you have Daryl Roberts, who, as you said, has mostly been a third, fourth, or fifth corner, and then a bunch of guys that are just there. I, I think it is a long-term fix. If somebody like Rasul Douglas from Philly becomes available, I would love to see Joe Douglas go after him. Uh, if you could get him for a fourth-round pick or something, only because I think he's a guy that could be a long-term solution. He's someone that's young. He's really showed a lot of promise. He's an excellent tackler and really started to come into his own as a cover guy. A local kid, too. East Orange. Uh, started his uh, college career at Nassau Community College playing football, too, before transferring to West Virginia. So that's a guy that if he was available, he could be a potential long-term answer. But beyond that, you're probably looking at just depth pieces. And as you said, Joe, this is kind of going to be a patchwork situation. Um, you're going to have to just try to find guys that are not going to embarrass you, that have some experience and that can go in there and just, you know, maybe hold the fort until next year when Joe Douglas is able to start making investments because they're not getting Darius Slay. They're not getting Jalen Ramsey. They're not going to get Jimmy Smith. They're not going to get Trey Waynes. You're you're looking at guys like um, a name that was said to me by George Bremer, who covers the Colts for CNHI Sports in Indianapolis, was Nate Hairston, who is 25 years old, and he was a, a fifth-round pick by the Colts a couple of years ago. Last year, he played fairly well the first half of the season, then had a game that was so bad, I think he gave up two touchdowns single-handedly, that he was never heard from again. But he's young enough, and you might be able to get him for a late conditional pick. Remember, Rex Hogan, Joe Douglas' second-in-command, is somebody that would be familiar with Hairston and obviously has a relationship with Chris Ballard in the Colts front office. So you could be looking at someone like that, or as you said, camp cuts. But that's really all you're looking at. You're looking at some hold-the-fort guys unless somebody like Douglas becomes available, Rasul Douglas. I don't think that even if Ramsey or those guys are available, that Joe Douglas is going to want to give up the farm to get guys like that. I think he values his picks and really wants to take his time in rebuilding that unit. I think it's different if you spend a late-round conditional pick on a depth piece like, say, Alex Lewis on the offensive line or Nate Harris mentioned uh, the cornerback from the Colts. That's different because you're not giving up anything that's of major value. But the guys I just mentioned would require 
major investment draft pick wise. So I think it's going to be hopefully when he comes back, Tremaine Johnson, you'll have Brian Poole, you'll have Daryl Roberts. Like you said, Alex Brown, Tavon Campbell, uh, the Coop Marcus Cooper, maybe one or two other guys will get in the mix that get released between now and the beginning of the season. But it's going to be the weakest unit on the team. And I don't really think that there's much that Joe Douglas can do about it now. I think that the investments will get made both draft-wise and free agency-wise, but probably more so draft uh, at the season once the uh, free agent in the draft hit. I just don't think that there's much he can do right now. Looking over at a few more questions that are one more that's on the defensive side of the football. Was C.J. Mosley worth that much money? He's the highest paid inside line. He's basically reset the market for off-ball linebackers. He was their biggest investment this offseason. I don't think anybody doubts that he's going to be very good at his job. Is it going to be good enough to help compensate for some of the other deficiencies that are across the defensive depth chart, uh, most specifically? Or is he going to be like a souped-up version of what David David Harris was and uh, be a tone setter and a culture setter so much that he really does live up to the value of how much the team invested in him, not just this year, but uh, in other years going forward? Uh, And then another defensive question is Leonard Williams getting a second contract from the Jets? Um, you know, last year, he, when you actually looked at the numbers, Henry Anderson was getting double teamed at the same amount as him, but was more productive. Now, this year, he has Quentin Williams to take further heat off him. So, is he going to be as productive as he was last year? Is he going to be twice as productive because it's a contract year? Uh, or is he going to be, you know, is it going to be one of these borderline Muhammad Wilkerson situations where maybe he gets franchise tagged and it becomes an entire thing and it goes back and forth before he ultimately gets a deal? You know, I would say with Mosley and Williams, you know, they're not quite at the Jamal Adams level uh, with Jet fans yet. And Adams, I think, is if you had to bet on a Jet to be an all pro player this year, I would bet on Jamal Adams as, much, as excited I am as about Le'Veon Bell. And maybe Mosley has a bit of a higher pedigree. Uh, but what are your thoughts about those two guys going into the season? I'll start with Mosley. First of all, no disrespect to David Harris, who I love, but Mosley's a much better linebacker than Harris was. And I think that Mosley's coverage skills have largely been undersold. No, he's not going to blanket cover guys, but he does a good job to keep them in check. And he actually, I say, is a, a pretty good coverage linebacker. Not great or anything like that, but he's pretty good. I think that the value that he brings is not just his play, but also, yeah, like you said, as a tone setter, as a leader. And I think, look, they overpaid. There's no question about it. But I hate to say this. It was the Jets tax, right? That's really what this was. They had to overpay to lure him from Baltimore, which is where he wanted to go. He wanted to stay in Baltimore. And essentially, his agent said, look, he wants to stay in Baltimore, so if you want him, you're going to have to knock his socks off, and they did. The thing about it is, you look at what a lot of these other inside linebackers got. Quan Alexander, who I don't think is anywhere near as good, got something like 13 or $14 million. You look at some of these very mediocre pass rushers like Preston Smith, and they were getting $17 million. So the way I look at it is, in a, in a vacuum, is C.J. Mosley worth $17 million a year? Probably not. 
But if you're going to get, if you're going to overpay and you have this money, would you rather spend a few extra million and get one of the absolute best in the game to be one of the linchpins of your defense for the next bunch of years or spend two or three million dollars less and get a far inferior linebacker? So yes, they overpaid, but I think that he's going to be excellent. I think he'll be a pro bowler. I think he's got a shot to be an all pro selection as well, as you said, with Jamal Adams. And while they may have paid a little more than you'd like, I'm, I'm not that upset about it. As far as Leonard Williams, I do think he's going to see a second contract for a couple of reasons. Uh, Chris Nimbley has talked about this, but he's checked into it. And from everything his sources have told him, Leonard Williams is very, very well liked by the, the regime. Uh, Joe Douglas is very fond of him, uh, as is obviously Greg Williams and, and Adam Gase. They, they think he can be terrific in Williams' defense, and they love what he can bring, especially next to Quinn Williams. I think the thing with Leonard Williams that's been interesting is that, and Michael Mania did some great statistical work on this, if you look at um, the number one indicator of sacks the 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 biggest thing is um you know pressures and generally the guys that have the most amount of pressures tend to be you know toward the top in sacks Leonard Williams has been toward the top in pressures fairly consistently but he hasn't converted to sacks and it's been at a like historically strange outlier level at some point you have to figure and I'm not saying that he's going to get 12 sacks but you have to figure that the five sacks can turn into seven or eight at least just based on um, the fact that uh, what has happened so far has been such a st- statistical anomaly. I think with Quinn and Williams next to him now, it's really going to help matters. I think Leonard's going to be excellent against the run. And um, Joe Blewett and I were joking about this. We were calling it the Bermuda Triangle or the Triangle of Doom. Uh, with Mosley and the two Williams boys being able to stop the run consistently. But I think he's going to be able to get more pressure on, on the quarterback this year. I should say he should, he's going to be able to convert more pressures. And I think as far as the pass rush, which you'd mentioned before, Leonard Williams will play into that as well. I think they're going to get a lot of interior pressure between those two and even Henry Anderson. And I actually, I think that um, Jamal Adams, I don't know how many sacks he's going to get, but they're going to use him as a blitzer a fair amount too, I believe. Uh, I think uh, Jordan Jenkins will, will do okay. But I think Adams is, is going to be deployed quite a bit. So there, Greg Williams, if we know anything about him, he loves to bring the heat. So he's going to try to find creative ways to get to the quarterback. I'm hoping that Ja'Kai Polite at some point can develop into, you know, I'm not saying necessarily an elite pass rusher, but if he can be that guy that can get you in uh, eight to ten sacks consistently from the edge and be a, a fairly disruptive force at some point. Now, again, I don't expect it necessarily the first half of the season, or maybe it doesn't even come this year, but that could be the long-term guy. But I think in the short run, Leonard Williams will, will be one of the keys, and, and I do think that he's going to end up earning a second contract with the Jets. I think the, the main thing is going to be how much money are they going to have to pay him. But if I were a betting man, I would say that he's going to sign a, a long-term deal. All right, before we wrap, last two questions. Is Robbie Anderson going to be wide receiver one this year? And by that I mean, is he going to get up over 1,000 yards and be much more consistent week to week instead of being sort of the streak shooter that he's been in the past? And then how much are the Jets going to miss Chris Herndon and Avery Williamson? Herndon's four games, Williamson's going to be 16 games now. The reality is, 
you know, the Jets are going to have stretches of this season where they're starting guys like Neville Hewitt and Ryan Griffin and maybe someone like Kayvon Brown in the secondary. Um, how is that sort of middle and lower class of the roster going to help fill in for some of these gaps uh, that have happened because of suspensions or of injuries? And with Anderson, I'm very excited about his potential in this offense. I like how the Jets are diversifying his routes in the preseason. I think he is very much on the same page uh, with Sam Darnold, and I would be surprised and disappointed if he did not exceed a thousand yards this year and did not get a second contract. So, before we wrap, and then you know, in these coming episodes, dive a lot deeper into all these different things. What are your thoughts on Anderson expectations this year and filling the gap for Herndon and Williamson? Who you know, Herndon's gone for a fourth of the season, and Williamson's gone for the entire year now. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't play again for the Jets. I think that Anderson is going to be wide receiver one for this team. I don't know that he's necessarily going to be like wide receiver one in terms of, you know, top 10 to 12 wide receivers in the league or anything like that. But I do think that uh, when you consider Quincy Nunez's injury uh, problems and the fact that Adam Gase has really seemed to work a lot with Robbie Anderson on doing things beyond just as we said before, you know, hey, Robbie, just run and he'll throw you the ball. Uh, laying out in this, that last preseason game for that first down inside the five-yard line, stuff like that, I, I think that he has a real chance to get 1,000 yards. Now, the only caveat I would have here is that, remember, you're going to have numerous guys, especially if Quincy Newman stays healthy for a significant portion of the season, that can make plays in the passing game, which is good, but for Anderson's numbers, it may mean that he doesn't get as high of a total in yards and everything that we would you know, traditionally be hoping for from a quote-unquote wide receiver one. Because remember, you have Jamison Crowder, who I expect to make an impact. Anunua, if he's healthy, will make an impact. Le'Veon Bell is going to do some damage in a passing game and certainly be a safety valve there. You're going to also have Christopher Herndon, when he does come back, so at least for 12 of the games, He'll be a, a, a really nice option in the passing game. So I, I think that um, Anderson may very well hit over 1,000 yards, but I think even if he doesn't, there's a strong chance that he won't just be the best receiver on the team, but he'll himself to be well worth keeping around as a major weapon for Darnold going forward. And, and I think that um, the Jets probably would be wise to try to sign him to a long-term deal before the end of the season, but we'll see how that works out. But I'm very optimistic about him. As far as both Herndon and Avery Williamson, look, I think the Jets are going to miss both of them, certainly. Christopher Herndon was really coming on last season, and, and he showed the potential to be much like Donald at the quarterback position, the elusive tight end that the Jets haven't had in a really long time. I mean, honestly, the last time the Jets had a consistent weapon wide receiver that you know was able to do what Herndon was showing last year was Mickey Schuler, and as you know, Joe, that was a long time ago. Now there were guys that showed flashes. Johnny Mitchell actually was pretty solid, but he just didn't do enough. Dustin Keller, there were games where he looked like he could be a really awesome tight end, and then he just would fall off the map for games. So not having a guy like that who Darnold built some real chemistry with and who creates a lot of mismatches as a tight end. Uh, that'll certainly hurt in the passing game. Thankfully, they upgraded in other areas, and, and Darnold himself, I think, is going to be a lot better. So 
the sting will be noticeable, but I think they'll be able to get by for a few games at least. Thankfully, knock on wood, he's not was for. Williamson, I think it's funny. A lot of Jets fans are kind of like poo-pooing this as if it doesn't really matter. They're saying, oh, he's not really good in coverage. And, you know, well, they got uh, Neville Hewitt will be just as good. And then Cashman's going to be great. And they seem to like Cashman anyway. They were playing with the first team. And, yeah, I mean, Neville Hewitt's okay. And Cashman showed some promise in training camp, especially in coverage. But Avery Williamson is a really good linebacker. You know, Joe Blewett and I were talking about this not even on a podcast, we, you know, a lot of times, you know, we'll just talk on the phone or we text because we're both insomniacs. And what he said was, and I thought this was a really good analogy, that Avery Williamson was going to be the Bart Scott to C.J. Williams, Ray Lewis. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily saying that Avery Williamson's as good as Bart Scott, and I'm not certainly not saying that C.J. Mosley's as good as Ray Lewis. But the point is, is that Avery Williamson is that really good second linebacker, and I think he, he was a leader on that defense. He's somebody that, that was, uh, had really good instincts, a, a short tackler, really good against the run, and nowhere near as bad against the pass as some people seem to think he was. Uh, we, we can only hope that Neville Hewitt can step in and that Blake Cashman can step in and that they can pick up the slack. And I know that there's been talk that maybe Williamson wouldn't be back here in 2020 regardless of the injury. I think now, unfortunately, especially if Hewitt and or Cashman play reasonably well, it's, his fate may be sealed, which is a shame to see. But I think he's going to be uh, you know, a significant loss. Um, I just hope that Greg Williams is able to scheme around that, and I hope that Cashman and Hewitt are able to step up and play fairly well in his absence. But, yeah, there's no question. The Avery Williamson injury is, is very detrimental to that Jet defense. All right, Scott Mason, thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, working through uh, our upcoming 10 episodes. Everyone, again, subscribe to the Play Like a Jet feed and be ready for 10 straight episodes on the turn on the Jets feed starting on Monday. Uh, This will publish Thursday morning. As always, thank you for listening, uh, and we will talk soon.